Coming up on Tech Nation, three different takes on the smart home. Todd Monigold from Segled on smart lighting. Thad White from UMA on the in-home security of video. And Taj Monku from Cognitive Systems on motion detection everywhere in your home and how it all works together. We'll also hear from Rick Kowalski from the Consumer Technology Association on the trends in U.S. consumer tech. And Sundip Doshi from Airnos tells us about a tiny chip that can monitor the air that we breathe. All this in our continuing coverage from the Consumer Electronics Show in Las Vegas on this week's Tech Nation. Let's take five with Moira Gunn. This is Five Minutes. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but names will never hurt me. That was a popular refrain when I was young, whether parents or somebody else's parents or anyone in authority for that matter. When you were outraged that someone called you a name, you can count on that old line being rolled out in response. At one level, it was sort of a, kid, get over it. At another, it was attempting to inoculate you against bad behavior. At still another, the person saying it had abdicated any responsibility to take action, which only occurred to me recently. After a few decades passed, I'm a parent in California, and times had indeed changed. Preschools had three- and four-year-olds face each other, acknowledge the hurt of their words, and make an effort, and yes, I'm quoting here, to fix their feelings. Quite a distance from get over it, kid. In fact, you're not supposed to get over it. More times than not, calling people names is far more deeply hurtful and long-lasting than sticks and stones. It's a stick and a stone, all in one. I don't mean to say that name-calling was supported or even ignored, but there was no catchy refrain for don't call people names, it's hurtful, or saying things just to hurt people is bad. There was no pithy line ready for the circumstance. And if you analyze that sticks and stones line, you might come up with the argument that you could call other people names, and it's not going to hurt them. So who cares? It feels good to evacuate your own bad feeling by saying something awful to someone else. To borrow from the law, no harm, no foul. But nobody buys that. If there was no foul, all us kids would not be complaining about our sibling when mom and dad were out of earshot, or little Johnny down the street, or Polly while standing in line for recess and the whole class could hear. You bet it hurts. And it doesn't just hurt children. It hurts every living, breathing human being at any age. And now today, instead of everyone in the school cafeteria, anyone can say horrible things about anybody else 24-7 to the whole world via social media. Oh, I'll just use an example here. Say on Twitter. Here's the cycle. 
A person with a huge following, including all the global news media, is without bounds when it comes to saying whatever pops into his head. There are layers on layers of hurt palpable in his tweets. And let's just focus on the adjectives. Fake, sick, biased, sad, dishonest, failing, vicious, incompetent, unpopular, sleazy, weak, and terrible. You might as well throw in crooked, lion, and crying. And what are these? They are name-calling. While name is a noun, I'm pointing at adjectives. It's like driving the getaway car. It's the same crime. As a journalist, I can tell you they are subjective and not objectively descriptive. And if you are the target, it hurts palpably. And worse, if you believe that people believe that adjective, if it sticks, interesting use of the word, then you will feel threatened, which was the intent. But hey, big news. We grew up. We built social media, and we can rebuild it now that we have experience with it. We can make disparaging language unacceptable because free speech can't be free. If you are afraid, you will be attacked. I'm Moira Gunn. This is 5 Minutes. Five Minutes is produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Five Minutes is a production of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt. From San Francisco, I'm Moira Gunn, and this is Tech Nation. Today on Tech Nation, with all the gadgets that are available in the smart home, I brought three pros together to give us a total perspective. Then Rick Kowalski, who focuses on industry and business intelligence at the Consumer Technology Association, gives us a picture of what's selling in the U.S. technology industry. And Sundip Doshi from Airnos tells us about a nanochip that can read the air that we breathe all in our continuing coverage from the Consumer Electronics Show in Las Vegas. At CES, I was awash with requests to review individual gadgets for the home. What I thought might be more helpful was to bring together three recognized companies to give us an integrated perspective on the smart home. Todd Manigold is the Senior VP of Marketing from Sengled. Thad White is the Vice President of Product at UMA. And Taj Manku is the CEO of Cognitive Systems. Well, we're here at CES. 
there are so many smart home products, I I hesitate to open my emails. <laughs> it's like <laughs> I'm being asked about so much. We have this, we have that, we have this. And I thought, I'm going to get you guys together. You sort of represent uh, an arc, if you will, or or even sort of the, the total complement of what's going on. And let me start with you, Todd. Uh, if you could kind of talk about some of the basic devices that are now going into smart homes, including what you do at Senglin. Yeah, I mean, I think the the addition of the, the voice control category has, has created this uh, arc and basically awareness of the smart home. And for us, that has brought a lot of attention to what you can do with voice. And lights are the one thing in a home that are everywhere, right? And so we're we're really on a mission to try and make lighting easier, more economical for people because it's it's not so interesting to have a bunch of connected devices in one room because then you go into you go into your living room and it's fully connected and then you walk into the kitchen and the bedroom and you go back to life as it were maybe 5 or 10 years ago. And so if if we can help have people spread lighting and and connect those lights to other devices that might be in the home whether it be security or thermostats or something then you start to have a really a smarter home that becomes easier or does more things for you and so um, really we're really trying to get people to spread it out throughout the home and so what are the the kinds of products that Sengled so we provides? we make uh, we make products that are actually simple on off control lights on or off that can be done with an app it can be done with a remote it can be done with voice we've added products that actually add color um, here at CES this year we actually added a, a hundred watt replacement so as people go become more and more familiar with the category you can't just limit it to one light level with a 60 watt is the traditional replacement that everybody's used to but in certain rooms uh, even the one that we're kind of sitting in, you need extra light to be able to read and and to tackle more and more audiences, particularly the older generations. We're trying to make smart lighting really be lighting that's useful for everyday purposes. So I might say, here's this light that we have here, and I want it brighter to read what I have. Exactly. Can I ask it to be brighter? So you'd say, hey, uh, ask one of the voice assistants, turn my lights brighter, turn the lights to 100% and magic. Uh, I mean, it's something that can be done quite easily. It makes your life quite simple, right? Lighting has never been difficult, right? So just because it becomes smarter, it doesn't, it can't be harder. And so we want to actually make lighting that actually adds some level of character to your home and becomes quite personal, but also doesn't make it any harder than it's always been. Now, let me ask you, Thad, at, at, at UMA, uh, you're taking a slightly different look at things. You're talking about home security inside the home. Tell us what you're doing there. Yeah, sure. So um, people may know UMA first as a phone service company, which we've been successful at. And a couple of years ago, we started looking at smart home because we had this device in almost a million households in, in the U.S. And, um, and what we could do with it to sort of facilitate people's lives. So it's a, it's a device called the UMA Tello, which originally uh, provided phone service, but we had built it with um, kind of the future in mind. So it's an it's a always-on connected device secure in the home with a set of wireless radios that turn out to be 
uh, great for connecting smart home devices. Um, so we launched uh, a couple of years ago a set of sensors that can monitor your home. So monitor doors and windows opening and closing, monitor motion, uh, monitor for water, uh, leaks, pipes, sinks, things. Um, and then we also launched a uh, smart camera. And um, all of that was initially focused on the um, security space, so really kind of um, uh, providing more value than the traditional security products provide. You know, the traditional model is a professional will come in and install all the sensors for hundreds of dollars and then charge you 40 or $50 a month. And we saw a model um, that was DIY. People could install these sensors themselves. They could monitor them from their smartphones. And... Um, uh, what, what we've seen that's interesting is that um, people have sort of expanded their use of that beyond security. So rather than just um, focusing on intruder detection and, you know, someone breaking into the home, uh, we're finding people using it to, you know, know when their kids uh, get home from school safely or uh, what their pets are doing at home. Um, so it's become really more of a, an awareness uh, system uh, than just security. And as I understand it, you're working on facial recognition as a part of that, but that doesn't really apply to your dog, right? <laughs> it, it can detect pets, actually. Um, and, you know, the real benefit of facial recognition is to provide uh, more customized and tailored alerts. So the problem with smart cameras today is you get lots of false alarms, right? You get... Uh, you know, notifications that you don't need because your family is coming and going or because trees are blowing outside. And so what our facial recognition does is allow you to tag uh, members of your family and um, ignore those, essentially. So I can choose to only be notified when a stranger is approaching my home or in my home. Um, and that's, again, great not just for intruders, but also, you know, I have a teenage daughter, and I love to know if a stranger comes home. With her. <laughs> With her, yes, exactly. I know how you yes. feel, even though I don't have a teenage daughter. I, I can see that. Okay, yeah. so, so now we have our light situation handled, you know, and now we have our security in terms of who's coming home handled. And uh, welcome back to Tech Nation, Taj. Oh, thank you for having me again. <laughs> now, where does cognitive systems fit in all this? So we sort of approach it, the smart home, just a little bit differently um, because we know there's certain elements that are required. For example, uh, knowing the motion that's happening in your house and where it's happening is actually a very important aspect of sort of the, 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 the layer that's needed for, for example, turning on lights. You move into a certain area, you turn on a light. Motion also helps with security. So knowing there's motion in a certain area or knowing the context of that motion. And context meaning how much motion there is and knowing where that motion is and how that motion is sort of moving through the house. For example, maybe in the kitchen at first, then it moves to the living room and so forth. But there's also an aspect where motion has to have an element of privacy because there are some people who don't want cameras specifically inside. They may want them outside. So the way we sort of address this problem is we sort of looked at the other element that's in your house, which everybody has, which is Wi-Fi. So there's a Wi-Fi router in everybody's house, and all these Wi-Fi routers are actually connected to all their client devices. So at Cognitive, we sort of developed this software layer that sits on access points 
And when it sits on the access point, it makes all the client devices in your house motion sensors. So there is no physical software running. And what that does is if you know that you have a bunch of um, – uh, let's say light bulbs, Wi-Fi light bulbs, you have these voice activated devices, you have, a, let's say, a television that has uh, Wi-Fi. So there's actually a lot of devices. And today there's about 13 on average. And that in 2020... In a home, there's about 13 of these Yeah, devices. you'd be surprised. There's a I probably lot. have some I don't even know. Yeah, you probably do. <laughs> you probably do. You'd be surprised. Uh, and then as we go forward in 2020, people are predicting, and depending on the reports, somewhere between 30 and 50 devices. So when you take all the devices and you make the motion sensors, and what we do is we, we sort of look at how the Wi-Fi flows in the house. We look at the disruptions. We calculate the disruptions, and then we figure out, okay, this is motion. And then we feed that back into an application. So the easiest application is obviously security. The second application is really understanding, for example, let's say you're an elderly person. They woke up in the morning. You want to know that they woke up. They went to the kitchen. You may not want to, they may not want you to see them. But you probably I get so to, don't want you to see exactly. whatever age I am. Yes, <laughs> no, exactly, especially teenagers. <laughs> so you don't. And then the, 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 the third part of it is really around um, smart home. So that comes down to knowing, hey, there's motion. I turn on that light in that room or whatever that may be. I move into a certain room. Maybe I want the television to tone, turn on. And we just we provide all the necessary uh, hooks so people can write applications around that. So we provide that software layer and, uh, you know, we just basically place it on an access point. So we're in a bunch of access points now and that's how we enable that smart home and all the aspects of motion to sort of be part of that smart home without actually adding any other devices in your house. So, well, that's a big seller. Yeah, <laughs> That's good. It's now, all software. Do you have to work with Sengled, and do you have to work with Uma to make sure that your software will interact with them? So we are all – so if their devices are Wi-Fi compliant and they meet Wi-Fi criteria, that is just enough for us to work with them. We so don't, they don't even know you're working Yeah, with they don't even know. They know now. Well, they know now. <laughs> <laughs> I guess the world knows now. Everybody knows, yeah. yeah. So yeah, um, it, it doesn't really matter. But – our software does need to sit on the on the internal access point, and the internal access point may be made up what they call mesh, where you have a number of access points because you want better coverage. So I also work with mesh uh, access points where it's just not one, but let's say three in a house. Three routers in a three house. routers in a house, which is becoming more common in North America, maybe less common in Europe, but it's becoming more common in Europe. And so we'll work into either single or multiple. But the client devices, whether it be, you know, uh, speakers, televisions, voice-activated systems, lighting, uh, any product that's in your house that has Wi-Fi, we just leverage it. Well, you know, it's interesting. I happen to have a, a very long house, as mm -hmm. it were, so that no single router can really reach it. So I, you know, I have to have two or I have an extension. Yep. And it didn't occur to me till. Till you just said that, it's like you've got to get that Wi-Fi because you want it for your phone or your computer in every corner of the house you yes. once you get there. And it, it didn't occur to me that that was something that could tie everybody's, all these issues together. 
which would be uh, uh, it's a it's an interesting proposition. I'll even interrupt myself here. I'm interested in what the consumer is ready for, and the consumer knows, you know, for the most part here that you got to have Wi-Fi in your house. You end up making sure there's Wi-Fi every place you want it, but it didn't occur to me that that could actually apply and 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 integrate all of these various devices. Um, in in your two case, and I'm asking Todd and Thad now, do you have an, a separate app on your phone? How do you control each of your devices? So we provide an app to to view your video feeds um, from your cameras to this monitor. This is the security cameras. Yeah, to, and to, to monitor your sensors. And um, so so that's one way to control. And we try to provide customers with maximum flexibility to set up the alerts that they want. Um, and that's on your phone or on and or your computer? Uh, your phone. Yeah, it's primarily smartphone based. So iPhone and Android. Yeah. And, you know, but the other thing we try to do is um, to to set intelligent defaults or learn customers' behavior so that um, they don't have to manage this. And I'll, I'll just give you one example is, you know, traditional security systems require you to <clears throat> arm and disarm the system as you come and go from the house. And that's typically through a keypad mounted on your wall. And, you know, we heard it's it's pretty stressful for people, right? You know, you, you punch the code and then you have 30 seconds to, to run out of the house while it's beeping. Um, so what we've done instead is use your smartphone location to automatically arm and disarm the system or to enable and disable your cameras when you come and go from the house. So we call that our geofencing feature, but it really makes it much more seamless because, you know, the app is great, but um, ideally you don't have to think about these things. They just kind of work and protect you as you live your life. Yeah, I mean, I, we're this, we're similar. I mean, we have a we have an app, a Singled Home basically controls all the lights, but I think we're trying to give people as many different ways to control the lights as possible because, uh, you know, you can control it by with the app, but there's sometimes where you have your phone on the kitchen table and you're in the living room. So maybe you'd prefer to, to talk to the, to the voice assistant and say, as we talked earlier, turn the lights on or make them brighter. So you connect to an Alexa, Google Home, Echo Dot, whatever, and then that will... Sure, that that becomes your lighting control, and we see a lot of people who interact with lights that way. Um, we have also added, you know, simple switches that do lights on off that you can mount anywhere, and basically serves as a remote control. Um, and then even this year, we've actually embedded motion sensors into the lights. So similar to what Dad was talking about, there are moments in the day or activities where you just want lights to do things, right? So it, it might be that you put a security light on your garage door. That light senses it turns on, but that light then also triggers other lights in the living room or the kitchen to come on because either it's for security purposes or maybe it's for convenience because you're coming home with a set of groceries or whatever. Um, I think, you know, again, we talked about it to really make it a smart home. It has to do things for you that are quite easy. Um, and then there's, you know, the, the really simple things about I'm sitting, we're sitting here in Las Vegas. I can turn the lights on from here. Right. And so How you, do you know, so if it, the light turns on in your home and you're not there, so, is it really, no, yeah, is it, it, I guess there's a philosophical argument, <laughs> but it, oh, cause your woods. security camera will pick it up. <laughs> that's right. That's right. You can check your cameras. Um, <laughs> yeah. but over the holidays, right. I mean, it's, it's quite easy to basically create a little bit of, of presence mimicking, so to speak that, Hey, there are really people in and have the lights go on at 10 o'clock or, you know, on at six o'clock, off at 10 o'clock and back on in the morning to show that there's some movement. And it's just another layer of maybe peace of mind. 
I think one of the keys that I'm getting here is that we kind of can guess what our functions are, what we're looking for. But part of this is sort of a brave new world. We don't actually know how we're going to use it because we've never had these smart homes before. Our life is going to go on if we ha- don't have this stuff in our house. We, it, it was that way beforehand. So in principle, there's not necessarily a need. So it's actually creating a, a really personal want and trying to address that one thing that gets you started. And then you kind of move through all these different things and start to add, well, hey, that was really cool. I could turn the lights on. I'd really like to have it connected to my security or I'd really like them to do things more automatically. And I think it becomes it, – it's a really personal story that that I think – some of us as an industry still need to help educate the greater audience if it's possible. Yeah. So I, I, I yeah, I, I, t- I tend to agree. I think the, when it comes to smart homes and getting it adopted, I sort of go back when I think about uh, year 2000 where Wi-Fi just became, you know, it just started coming out and a lot of people setting it up was, was you had to basically have a IT degree to set it up. I, I feel smart homes are sort of like that today and I think there is a lot of work that's happening in different layers from the chipset guys all the way to the cloud people that are trying to make this problem very simple. So I am, you know, even let's say my mother who's in her 70s, if she can go out and set it up and just turn on a switch, that is where I think it changes everything. Because right now it is an effort. You have to have a little bit of understanding. And I think as all these different layers from the people doing the chipsets to the people all the way to the cloud, once they start making it easier for everybody, I think then it just becomes natural to have your lights turning on. And I would imagine my kids, when they, you know, they're my age, this will be the norm. And they will. Wonder, We're leaving in the yeah, dark they, ages they'll, now. They'll, they'll wonder. <laughs> their their kids will wonder a light switch. What's a light switch? <laughs> <laughs> That's good. <laughs> and I'm also thinking here, uh, Thad, with the security and all the video. Used to be you had to have, you know, enough storage on the device. The cloud has made all the difference to video security cameras. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And, you know, it's it's just terrific to be able to be in Las Vegas and, you know, easily access my home video feed in California, right? Everything is virtual now. I can get to it from any phone. Um, and, you know, costs are coming down, which is great. We're now able to offer seven days of storage of all your video clips for free. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's... So you have a uh, continuous seven days... Exactly. Yeah. Of clips. So we record on on motion and you can set it again, you know, based on your privacy, because many people are concerned they don't want to be recorded themselves. Um, So when they're home, when their smartphone is home, recording is turned off. But when they leave, recording is turned on. Um, and so your smartphone is home. It knows that because you walked in the door with your smartphone. Exactly. You don't have exactly. to say turn it on and off. Exactly. The geofencing feature. Yeah. And, um, you know, one of the other things, you know, it, it, we do still sometimes experience Internet outages or power outages. And um, we account for that. So our camera does have onboard storage and will record for a while if, if your Internet or power is down. But eventually it makes its way to the cloud. Yeah. Mm. Well. Guys, thank you so much. What I like about this is it sort of integrated it all together for me. So there may be still a lot of people out there going, I don't know. I don't know. But there's also a bunch going, I can hardly wait. So uh, I really appreciate you guys coming in. Thanks for having me. Thank you very much. Appreciate it.
I've been speaking with Todd Manigold from Singlet, Thad White from UMA, and Taj Manku from Cognitive Systems. More information is available at Sengled.com. That's S-E-N-G-L-E-D.com, Sengled.com, from UMA.com. That's O-O-M-A, UMA.com, and from CognitiveSystems.com. You're listening to Tech Nation. Podcasts of Tech Nation are available at NPR One, iTunes, Stitcher, and other podcast syndication outlets. Coming up in the second half of our show, we'll hear from Rick Kowalski on U.S. consumer technology trends and Sundip Doshi on a nanotechnology that can analyze the air that we breathe. Stay with us. Listening to Tech Nation with 180,000 attendees descending on Las Vegas for the Consumer Electronics Show, it's hard to get a big picture. Rick Kowalski is the Senior Manager of Industry and Business Intelligence at the Consumer Technology Association. Okay, Rick, hit me with the number. How big is consumer technology in the United States? The consumer tech industry is $398 billion. It's a huge industry that includes a lot of consumer technologies like TVs and smartphones. Isn't that bigger than Hollywood? Uh, you know, <laughs> it probably is 
pretty big. I, I'm not sure how it compares <laughs> not to Hollywood. Not sure what that number is. But it, Hollywood plays into it because we're also tracking as part of that uh, streaming services that stream all sorts of content, music content, video content, as that all kind of plays into what our devices are capable of and allowing us to do. So it's both devices and it's what connects those devices to everything else. Certainly, if you look back on your life, 10 years, 15 years, your devices have all changed. In fact, the number of devices you have has changed. Yeah. You know, we didn't have smartphones as an example. What's the smartphone market like? A uh, smartphone market makes up about a quarter of total hardware sales. So it's it's a major portion of the market. And and like you said, you know, just 10 years ago, that was barely, you know, a percentage of the market. But as smartphones got smarter and started getting faster, uh, they became the center of our lives, really, of our digital lives. Um, they connected to everything in our households. And so now you're seeing the smartphone is really one of the major hubs of how we interact with our gadgets in our home and interact with our friends and family. It's a, yeah, it plays a major role and um, continuing to just see how the way that has changed the industry is, is just so major. Now, uh, in the roughly 400 billion, you had to give me the exact number because that's your job. You know? Yeah. We'll <laughs> say yeah. roughly $400 billion that gets spent. Mm-hmm. How much of that is in smartphones? Looking at the wholesale value, it's about $80 billion. Wow. And that's 170 in 2019, we're expecting $170 million to ship to the U.S. Uh, if you look at that, you know, it's about 240, 250 million adults in the U.S. So if you look at 170 million phones shipping each year is a huge number. Uh, it's something that we've barely ever seen in the market, just uh, that many of one device shipping. And a lot of those adults don't know they're getting a new a smartphone next year, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah, it just it depends. Uh, you know, people tend to replace them about every two years. Uh, they, they're going for bigger screens, uh, better displays. There's some really beautiful high-resolution displays, better cameras. You know, 10 years ago, digital cameras were their own category, and now phones have kind of uh, encroached on that. And the cameras built in are... Uh, well, for one thing, there's sometimes more than one camera in your smartphone. Beyond that, they take wonderful photos and they're always in your pocket. Uh, so it's been a, a major driver of sales is, uh, you know, people are like, well, you know, I have the smartphone. It's a couple of years old, uh, but I could use a little better photos. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm seeing I some need new more storage. I need... yeah, yeah, more storage or, you know, uh, all the new apps. Uh, and uh, so I, smartphones, there's still room for some growth in this industry. It's, uh, it's starting to reach uh, 90% of households own at least one. Uh, you're talking about most adults are owning one, but people will continue to you know look for the latest and greatest. And uh, you know every couple of years, it'll improve <laughs> and you'll want that or new one. Or you'll need one for one reason or another. <laughs> yeah, you yeah. left it on the bus. Yeah, I hate or that. dropped it in, uh, in uh, a pool or whatever. <laughs> yeah, it is mobile. Anything you hold in your hand, you know, is it's subject to a lot of a lot of stress, shall we yes. say? Yeah. Uh, so at any rate, we're approaching saturation. And actually, with the cameras, I guess we're seeing the digital camera market per se. That's actually fallen off. Yeah. What's interesting there is that, well, the digital cameras, the technology, the embedded technology has done wonderful 
because it's built into so many gadgets. You have so many video cameras out there, whether it's smart, you know, security monitors for your home or you have these new action cameras that uh, you probably see surfers and uh, yeah. you know, the extreme sports type using these. Um, and the cameras are built in within the phones. Yeah. So in that case, we see a transition of the technology right. subsumed not, into other technology. You're not seeing as many dedicated cameras selling, but the technology behind it, the sensors are built in so many things now. But uh, as far as digital cameras go, you're seeing more potential in the digital imaging market. You see more potential with digital single lens reflex cameras. And so the high mirrorless. end. Yeah. So in the high end, uh, these are people who are enthusiasts. They're looking for really good shots and to do a little extra, you know, do more than what the typical smartphone can do. So you see a lot more of the some professionals using these, but the consumers want to kind of delve into photography as a hobby are picking up these new larger cameras. But even in this segment, these cameras that can take really great photos are uh, getting smaller and more compact, uh, lightweight. So uh, that's been a benefit just of the improvement of the technology inside, that it's more efficient. It's a real lesson in our lifetimes about how technology takes it's not just smaller, faster, cheaper. It goes, it's like water. They go into other uh, instances and, and uh, ways of using them and markets develop and then fall back. So really, really fascinating. Now, lots of people have digital assistants. Yeah, this is a huge uh, buzzword you've probably heard in the past uh, couple of years. A uh, very major market for us. It's about $3.2 billion in 2019 in terms of smart speakers. Uh, those are dedicated devices with a digital assistant built in. And w- what would they be? Would that be Alexa? Yeah, that's your typical. Uh, if you're talking through a speaker to Alexa or Siri or Google Assistant, those are kind of the major players in this market. But beyond the dedicated devices, you're seeing digital assistants be worked into all sorts of other devices, um, especially TVs. I think TV manufacturers are trying to get the TV as the main hub of the smart home so that you're communicating with that and it's giving you all your information about your household, all your smart home devices. You're also seeing digital assistants in cars. Uh, Voice interaction is It's a great solution for the car in a a place where you want your hands on the wheel uh, and you don't want distraction. So speaking to your car to tell you to, you know, play your music, play the news, tell you direction. Yeah, give me the closest parking space. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So it's a, I mean, it's a great application. And what's been wonderful to see is how natural language processing has come over the past, you know, decade or so. Uh, even 10 years ago, the error rate for these uh, voice interaction, um, natural language processing, it, it was still high enough that it was really awkward to talk to uh, a digital assistant. Now it's becoming much more natural and people in general are just getting very used to talking to a device and to, to kind of play with it, uh, just, you know, have a little conversation with it, to ask it questions. I, I feel like these are the new search engine in some ways. So it's a, it's a really exciting new interface for So the humans devices. are still there. The first thing is, is you don't have to, where is the remote? You know, you don't have to, yeah, you don't have yeah. to go around there. So you never, you know, you go into a new hotel room and said, where do they put the remote and how does it work? And it's like, well, you just talk to the TV. You know, I was like, well, that's yeah. pretty interesting. Yeah. But then you all sit around in front of the TV at home and you've got to figure out 
who gets to talk to the TV? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Don't let that person talk. Then right. I was like, wait a minute, I'm the adult here. I talk to the TV. You know, we have things to work out. Yeah, these are nuances. And I mean, that's a great thing about CES in general is that people are here to kind of hash out those issues. You know, all right. It's a constant process of improvement. Uh, we're always discussing, you know, how do we tackle some of these issues? Um, and know. sometimes the the new kids, the small ones, you know, you see one or two people, they're entrepreneurs, and they, mm-hmm. they identified a small problem. goes throughout the entire industry. Yeah. So we've covered smartphones and digital assistants. What about laptops? They even fall in this category anymore? No. Oh, uh, laptops are huge too. Computing is still a major part of our lives. You know, uh, people are always going to need computing devices. You know, especially for work, but for education uh, and just entertainment in general. Uh, what we've seen in computing is you always have this small segment of desktops, people who need the, the power devices, whether they're gaming or they're processing huge amounts of data. Some people need that powerhouse, and there's this segment of the industry that's the, those large desktops. But uh, laptops are definitely the, the main player now, kind of holding the market. Um, and what's interesting there is they've incorporated uh, the tablet is kind of built in now. You have convertible laptops that uh, will fold up or uh, in some way, shape, or form, the, the keyboard disappears, and now you're left with a touchscreen di- display, and uh, it's kind of the new tablet-slash-laptop. Uh, so it's a big trend in the industry. You also see Chromebooks are pretty popular. A lot of the software is in the cloud. Uh, a lot of the... And data is in the cloud. Right. All Everything, you, you no longer store your files on the device. It's all based on the cloud. So... It's kind of taking advantage of the ubiquitous connectivity we have now. And uh, it's really shown the power of the cloud, I think. So when we talk connectivity, frequently we hear the term 5G. What does that mean and what does it do for any of us? Yeah, 5G is a pretty popular topic right now. Uh, We're starting to see the first 5G trials in the U.S., uh, 5G is the next gen of wireless connectivity. So it's promising speeds of 100 times more than 4G. 4G is what we have right now, and that's probably what's on your smartphone. 5G is promising uh, also lower latency, so uh, more responsive devices. So if you're interacting with someone, uh, maybe it's through video chat or through video game, that uh, interaction is going to feel a lot more natural, a lot more real-time. Uh, because there's lower latency, it's taking less time for your actions to get from point A to point B, from device to device. Uh, so I think it's going to make things a lot more natural for us as we interact online more and more. It's going to make for more bandwidth in terms of uh, higher resolution video. Uh, so you'll you'll see uh, a lot of 4K is now being sent over broadband, works pretty well over that. But imagine 4K coming over uh, a wireless connection and even getting 5G wireless as a home broadband alternative uh, instead of a wired uh, service coming to your door, you're actually getting 5G in the home. So some Just coming out of the sky. Yeah. Yeah. So this is kind of the, the purely wireless future that we're looking at with 5G. Well, I have to say the cable company came and ripped up my entire front street (laughs) and just replaced it. I had to replace it twice because the first time the city inspector said, 
no, that, this is not good enough. So they just we did it again, and I'm just like, well, you're investing a lot in an infrastructure that's about to go away. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think uh, what we're going to see is yeah, a lot more wireless transponders, a lot of wireless hubs like throughout neighborhoods that will help facilitate the 5G. So yeah, it's going to be a wireless infrastructure. And the other exciting thing about this is it allows for a lot more devices on the network. Uh, you had the CEO of Verizon talking about a million devices per square kilometer being able to function at once. And so being able to handle that much capacity allows for so many different services and devices interacting with one another in real time. Um, so it'll be really exciting to see how businesses take advantage of this. It always seemed like when we came to Las Vegas for uh, a big technology show, all the people there were techies and they brought all their technology with them. CES is no exception. And all of a sudden you don't have connectivity because everybody's on. Yeah. <laughs> everybody's, everybody needs something. Yes. Yeah. And so what you're saying is that we might be able to jump to that challenge. Yeah. Yeah. I think uh, it makes it more robust so that, you know, in situations where you have 180,000 people in one place, uh, you'll have, you know, solid, reliable connectivity. So no more glitches. No more glitches and yeah. we don't have to tear up the roads. Correct. <laughs> Correct. We've covered the person and the place and uh, sort of data moving around. What else is relevant there, significant to industry numbers, if you will? Yeah. Uh, so it's interesting. In smart speakers, they're kind of acting as the hub and uh, attracting other devices that people want to tie to that smart speaker. So you might want to have smart lights in your home and you can tell Alexa, oh, hey, turn the lights on in the living room. Or um, you might want a smart home monitor, a home camera that, you know, security camera that watches the front door. You might have a smart doorbell. Uh, that kind of integrates that doorbell and security feature. So you have all these other devices. Uh, in terms of numbers, there's about 37 million smart speakers shipping this year in the U.S. and almost 30 million uh, other smart home devices shipping. And that's everything from uh, Wi-Fi cameras to smart doorbells, smart door locks, I think if you've ever done an Airbnb, it's, I've seen a lot of Airbnb hosts using smart locks as a, a way to get people into their households in a secure way that uh, you can limit access to one person for a short time. It's things like this that make it very convenient for people. You also have the energy, smart energy element of it. And there we sort of see the line between the smart speaker and a true digital assistant. You know, the smart speaker will controls what you're hearing and what you're viewing, whereas the the digital assistant has a whole lot more capability. Yeah, you can interact with it in a way to let it know your day-to-day -day activities, and it'll kind of have a sense of what your day-to-day -day activities are so that it can uh, even be predictive about uh, how, to, how to handle your home and how to uh, make things a little more convenient for you. Any segment of this that is just starting to disappear? In terms of all consumer technology, yeah, uh, I think landline telephones. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, the industry is always uh, it's always changing. There's older technologies that at one time were you know the major, the big driver of industry sales. Uh, you know, talk 50 years ago, it was just TVs and radios and stereos. 
and, and landline phones for that matter. And phone ma- voicemail s- systems that were like you could have in your home and there were a box a big box, bigger than a cable box. Yeah, so that's exactly what we see is that you see d- dedicated devices that are probably pretty large um, that just do one thing. And over time, we we talk about convergence. It's the all these uh, dedicated devices merging and slowly merging into single products over time. So, you, I mean, even in TVs, you saw VCR TVs uh, after a while. You saw the VCR TV, those combined, DVD TVs. So, and now we have connected TVs that are built in, uh, built in internet, built in apps. It's a constant process of convergence. Uh, all these technologies emerge and they they merge together and the real innovators are starting to tackle those individual problems and they might make another new dedicated device that may someday just see itself put in all devices. Well, Rick, it's been a real pleasure. Thanks for coming in. Yeah, it's, it's been my pleasure and I uh, hope you enjoy the show. Rick Kowalski is the Senior Manager for Industry and Business Intelligence at the Consumer Technology Association. More information is available at cta.tech. Gadgets are one thing, even if they're all connected on a network. But let's not forget, their power all starts tiny. It's as essential to technology as the air that we breathe. Sundip Doshi is the CEO of Airnos. Now, Sundip, you're showing me something here that's a little computer chip, like one-eighth of an inch by one-eighth of an inch, a little tiny guy. What does it do? That's a great question. So we know what's in the food we eat. We know what's in the water we drink, but we don't really know what's in the air we breathe, and we take 20,000 breaths a day. This little chip that we've designed, it's a nanomaterial-based gas sensor that can detect multiple gases simultaneously. And it basically gives us a better understanding of how what is in the air and what we are breathing uh, impacts human health and wellness. What's sort of interesting is all we really care about is can I see through the air (laughs) or can't I see through the air? Is it foggy or is there smoke? Is there something like that? But a whole lot of what can affect us in an adverse way we can't even begin to see. That's absolutely true. And most people, when they think of pollution, they think of, uh, you know, they, oh, I can see it, right? It's, it's, it's hazy or it's dusty and it's microdust. But really, it's so much more because in addition to microdust and particulate matters, there's gases that you simply cannot see. And sometimes they're odorless and, you know, and you just don't know that they exist. And all of these have very specific health outcomes, you know, in terms of uh, your, your ongoing well-being. Does this little bitty chip do just one gas and we have to have several lined up for each particular gas that we're trying or pollutant that we're trying to detect? No, that's the best part about it. So it's a sensor array and it can detect more than one gas simultaneously up to the parts per billion. And by the way, one part per billion is one blade of grass on a football field. So it's extremely sensitive. And so when you're exposed to certain pollutants, it it immediately detects that. And this is a nanotechnology, meaning it's really tiny. Nano is all about size. Right. Is this a breakthrough in the sense that it's so small? We definitely think so. So in addition to being nano, the ability to detect more than one gas simultaneously at that low-level concentration is the big breakthrough. And then being able to really produce it at a price point that, you know, is going to be embedded into products everywhere. Well, that's a really good question because when 
I look at San Francisco, and which I did when we had fires recently, and we were shut down. I mean, literally, it was the businesses were shutting down, the university shut down, the station shut down. Uh, the readings weren't exactly where you were. They were at a, just a few places in town, and they were making decisions about the entire city. Absolutely. So the whole goal here is the uh, granularity of data matters. And you're only going to get that when you have density of sensors, right? And so if you can deploy this in a way that is uh, super dense, where it's easy and it's easy to integrate into other product lines, you're going to get the kind of data that will allow you to make better decisions. Sometimes it's funny, you know, you, you, you think of going in a direction, and especially during the fires, right? I mean, I heard one story where someone was redirected uh, just because of the traffic situation, but they ended up in an area that was so much more polluted because obviously there was no integration of air quality quality with, you know, uh, ways or, you know, any kind of traffic kind of, uh, you know, map. In addition to which, you've got just life. You might be located right next to a manufacturing plant, or you might be working in a building that has materials that is, are giving off gases. You don't know what your personal microclimate is. That's right. A lot of times, a lot of the uh, industries and manufacturing facilities have uh, detectors, but that's not detecting personal air. And, you know, what we're breathing right here in this room is going to be very different than the hallway, and it's going to be very different than what's in the street. And so to have that understanding at that personal surrounding level is going to make all the difference. What are the gases or the pollutants that could have medical impact? So, I mean, everyone is familiar with carbon monoxide, right? I mean, that's a no-brainer. I mean, if you are exposed to that at a certain level of uh, concentration, within 15 minutes to 30 minutes, it could be super dangerous and probably fatal too, right? But some of your typical gases out there, I know when you talk about formaldehyde is another one. So you bring in this nice little furniture, you know, and it looks gorgeous. It's all this mahogany thingy much bigger. And the uh, next minute you know, you know, you've got a headache and you think you're coming down with the flu and really it's off-gassing of formaldehyde. So if you had known that and kept that furniture maybe in the garage for a couple, three days to let the off-gassing go, you would have, you know, saved yourself that little headache that you got. Now that's a, a short-term problem. Correct. There are longer-term problems. And I know that you are doing a study right now with pregnant women. Let's talk about that. So that's really interesting. Um, uh, we, we, there are several different studies uh, with uh, women who are pregnant and correlating air quality to the baby's brain development. And studies have shown that uh, when there's a certain level of exposure, uh, certain health conditions such as autism, COPD, diabetes, even obesity are triggered based on the, the exposure of the mom and the baby to those these pollutants. And it's not about huge levels of pollutants. So it's not something that someone would know ordinarily. It's the low-level pollutants over a long period of time, that continuous exposure. And so the interesting thing today is a lot of these facts are known, but they don't know which are the real bad actors when it comes to the gases. And that's what the researchers are now able to tell, or they are trying to figure out with a solution like this. And so you have something here that looks a bit like an Apple Watch. That's right. So until now, a pregnant mom would have had to wear a backpack over a 24-hour period, maybe once every three months, to have a good understanding of what's in the environment that she's breathing. And what this allows the researchers to do is to deploy these, these variable sensors to the mom 24-7, 
and be able to really understand what they're breathing. And then once the baby is born, it can be clipped on to the diaper bag so that now ongoing you know, research can be conducted as the baby you know, grows. Until this happened, we really didn't know the exposure over time through the pregnancy. Absolutely. I mean, there was a lot of, uh, you know, correlation and a lot of uh, simulation and modeling of data, but this is now real, right? This is personal air that it's being detected. And who's studying it? So we have a children's hospital out in the West Coast, as well as a university medical center out in the East Coast. We're also planning on deploying this in Japan. In Japan, it's the uh, National Institute of Environmental Studies. It's uh, NIST that is interested in doing a pilot project. They currently have a program where about 100,000 women children are being um, researched to understand their air quality and its impact on human health. So we're hoping to do a pilot project with them too. So what you've done is you've taken this detector, you made it really tiny. (laughs) So it can go into any number of things. It can float through the universe. There's plenty of room in just about any product to put one of these things. And the more you have it, the more you can tell what's going on just throughout any area. That was the goal. When we first designed it, for me, you know, from a pure business standpoint, you know, I was excited just as any, you know, technical geek guy would be once you get into the science aspect of the sensor and what it can do. But I realized that, you know, because air is very different from different environments and in different areas, if we were not going to be able to have a great dense network of sensors, the quality of data is going to be, you know, just so-so, right? And so it was created in a manner where it was low power, it was small, it was going to be affordable and easily integrable to any different IoT product or any household you know, gadget. Well, it may seem that this only affects a very few people. I was reading where 80% of urban dwellers are exposed to air quality levels exceeding the World Health Organization limits. It is true, and it's it's rather mind-boggling. I think World Health Organization, who has reported some 4-point-some million people die every year because of exposure to pollutants. So, yes, there is a problem. And unfortunately, you know, for example, folks living by freeways, they're exposed to it a lot more than, you know, folks, you know, in nicer neighborhoods, perhaps. And so I think there is, you will have a much better understanding of where some of these pollutants are and what, you know, folks can actually do about it. Information is overwhelming here. We really need it, don't we? <laughs> we we definitely do. But, you know, this is going to be great because the kind of understanding that we'll have on on human life and, and, and how this, you know, plays a role in our health. And so this is going to be able to tell us a much better understanding of it's not just about the food and water. It's about the air that you breathe too. Well, Sandip, thank you so much for coming in. I hope you come back and see us again. Great. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Sandip Doshi is the CEO of Airnos. More information is available at airnos.com. That's A-E-R-N-O-S, airnos.com. From the Consumer Electronics Show, CES 2019 in Las Vegas, Nevada. For Tech Nation, I'm Moira Gunn. Tech Nation and its regular segment, Biotech Nation, are produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Executive producer is Matt Gardner. The director of technical production is Monte Carlos. And audio engineers include Howard Gelman, Seal Muller, and Larry Upton. Our theme music was composed by Ann Noctrieb-Zessiger and Robert Powell. 
with title creation provided by NameLab Incorporated of San Francisco. Program information and internet audio is available on the web at technation.com. TechNation and BiotechNation are productions of TechNation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt.